This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include Mature Themes and Death of Parents. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 259. Greetings, listeners. Happy New Year, and welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you and tell you what's new with my life and my writing. So let's get started, shall we? Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you the start of my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. The first edition of this book aired on the Metamore City podcast in 2007 and 2008, where it was performed by a full cast with music and sound effects. That version won the Parsec Award for the Best Long-Form Audio Drama. You can still listen to it by going to metamorecity.com and clicking on the link in the header that says Past Episodes. This is a new solo read of the fourth edition of Making the Cut, which was published in 2020. For this version, I've broken the story into shorter chapters for easier podcasting. I've also made some editorial changes, which I discuss in the new author's note at the beginning of the book. And now, without further ado, here is Making the Cut. Making the Cut, a novel of Metamore City, written in red by Chris Lester. Dedication for Brian and Sarah. Though far from me in distance, you were never far from my thoughts. Author's Note I began writing Making the Cut in 2007, when I was the tender age of 28. I had been to graduate school at the University of California, Santa Cruz, but I had yet to get my first real grown-up job. And apart from those three years in California, I had spent my entire life in the white, suburban, conservative, middle-class, evangelical Christian bubble of southeastern Michigan. There are a lot of things that I understand better now, more than ten years on and some of the most important learning I've done is in the areas of gender identity and gender expression. Making the Cut is a book where characters change their morphological sex through the use of magic. Such a transformation should not, in and of itself, lead to a change in a character's gender identity. In other words, a person who is born male would not begin thinking of himself as a woman, simply because he temporarily inhabited a body that was morphologically female. We have a word for people whose gender identity matches a sex other than their morphological sex. They are transgender, or trans. A person whose gender identity is congruent with their morphological sex is said to be cisgender, 
or cis. A cis man whose body was transformed to be morphologically female would therefore now be a trans man, not a woman. Further, there are non-binary, bigender, and agender people whose gender identity is not strongly tied to being male or female. Gender identity is not about what parts you are currently equipped with. I didn't understand any of this when I wrote Making the Cut. I knew that trans people existed, but while I was sympathetic to their rights and their desire to live their lives according to their proper gender identity, I still tended to think of them as an X trapped in a Y's body. In reality, a trans woman's body, for instance, is a woman's body because a woman inhabits it, regardless of whatever traditional markers of femaleness her body may or may not exhibit. It took me an unfortunately long time to understand this, and I apologize for my slowness. In my more recent books, I've made a point of using the pronouns that reflect a character's gender identity, rather than the morphology of whatever body they're currently inhabiting. In making the cut, I did not follow this practice, and I believe it is important to acknowledge and own this error. Of course, the existence of magic makes issues of gender even more complicated in Metamore's world than in our own. Making the cut involves one character, Danny, whose gender identity changes over the course of the book for reasons that go beyond the transformation of her body, and which I will not discuss here to avoid spoiling the plot. In this fourth edition of the book, I begin with Danny using male pronouns, and only shift to female pronouns as Danny comes to see herself as a woman, rather than a man in a transformed body. The other area in which making the cut reveals my past ignorance is in the area of gender expression. When Ava is teaching Danny about being a woman, she says a lot of things that reveal an overly simplistic view of how gender expression relates to morphological sex. Eva assumes that many aspects of what we might call traditional femininity are hardwired into the female brain, and that behaving in a feminine manner is just a matter of Danny following her nature. There is so much wrong with this attitude that it is hard to know where to begin. While there are, broadly, structural similarities between the brains of cisgendered women and between the brains of cisgender men, there is a lot of overlap between these two bell curves even in the expression of sex hormones, where the differences between cis men and cis women are the starkest, there is broad variability within each group. Furthermore, the behavioral markers of masculinity and femininity can vary in ways that are unrelated to a person's gender identity. So, for example, it is possible to be a cisgender man with very feminine modes of expression, or a cisgender woman with masculine expression. All of this is completely separate from the question of whether a person is cis, trans, non-binary, etc. Looking back at making the cut now, I take Ava's advice to Danny in the context of her character. Ava slash Evan Salindi is an androgyne with very conservative attitudes about gender roles. For them, gender identity and gender expression are both tightly congruent to their current morphological sex. Ava Evan has never had to deal with the problem of exploring questions of divergent gender identity and expression, because they've partitioned all of the masculine parts of their personality into the Evan persona, and all of the feminine parts into their Ava persona. Selindy therefore has a fairly narrow, and even sheltered, experience of what it means to be either a man or a woman. 
they assume that the differences between their Evan and Ava sides are the product of inherent biology, when in fact many of these differences are the result of their own psychology and the peculiar cultural pressures on androgynes in Metamore City. I would strongly caution the reader to take all of Ava's counsel to Danny with a grain of salt. This is the advice of one androgyne to another, within a particular cultural context. Ava doesn't know nearly as much about biology as she thinks she does, something that also could have been said for the author at the age of 28. Making the Cut is a flawed book, but apart from correcting Danny's pronouns, I have resisted the urge to try to fix it in the current edition. All of us are in the process of learning as we grow older. It is the curse of writers that we do our learning out in the open, where anyone can look back and bear witness to our mistakes. I hope that those reading this book now, or twenty years from now, will be able to see the spirit of compassion and shared humanity expressing itself through these admittedly imperfect words. Let us all keep growing, keep learning how to love and respect one another better. There are so many varied and wonderful ways to be human. May we all learn to appreciate this diversity, in others and in ourselves. Christopher Lester, Madison, Wisconsin, June 2019 Preface to Fourth Edition The first and second editions of Making the Cut follow the chapter divisions that were present in the original podcast novel, which aired on the Metamore City podcast from 2007 to 2009. In that version of the text, the book was divided into 31 chapters, many of which were extremely long. For the third edition, I restructured the book into 58 chapters, all of which are less than 5,000 words. I made a few minor changes to the text in the process, to clarify the viewpoint character or the time period in which a scene is taking place, and corrected a few typographical errors. For this fourth edition, I've decided to correct Daniel's pronouns, as described in the author's note. The deeper issue of the character's conflating gender expression with morphological sex has been left unchanged, as attempting to alter it would significantly change elements of the plot. For this, I beg the reader's indulgence. Chris Lester, September 30th, 2020, Madison, Wisconsin Prologue October 12th 1989, Christos Reckoning. Metamore City, Capital, Imperial Union of Metamore and Allied Nations. Abby Preston was having nightmares again. They came as voices in her sleep. She did not know where they came from, but she knew they were not hers. They were full of thoughts about things she had never thought about. They remembered things that she had not done. They were the voices of old women and young men, of mothers and little children. Some were so different that Abby was not even sure they were people, though they still felt the same sorts of things that people felt. All of the voices said different things, but the feelings were mostly the same. The feelings were the important part. Abby was quite sure about that. She didn't understand all the words, but she understood the feelings— and the voices all had very strong feelings about something. Sometimes they were very, very happy, because they felt good in ways that Abby did not really understand. 
Those dreams were confusing, but Abby didn't really mind them so much. Mostly, though, the voices told her that they were afraid, or that they were hurting, or that they were so mad that they wanted to hurt somebody. Sometimes they did, and then Abby heard the people they hurt, too. Abby could not see the faces that went with the voices, so her brain made up stories about them. Abby liked reading stories, but the stories her brain made up about the voices were not nice. Most of them did not have happy endings. The story her brain was telling her now was about a king and a queen who lived in a faraway land. They had one daughter, a princess, and they loved her very much. Abby usually liked stories that started that way, but she knew that this was not going to be a good story. The king and queen were thinking about their daughter and how much they loved her, but they were thinking this way because something was hurting them, and they could not stop it. An evil monster was inside the castle, and it was hurting the king and queen. It wanted to take their daughter away, and that made them afraid, and very, very sad. The monster was getting closer, and Abby pulled away, afraid. She did not want to hear the monster's voice. She had heard monsters a few times, and they were always dark and angry and ugly inside. She did not want that inside her. She did not want to know. The king and queen tried to scream, but they could not make any noise. The monster had its big, ugly hands around their necks, and it was squeezing them so they could not breathe. They tried to go find the princess, but the monster held them down, and they could not move. All they could do was lie there and hold each other, and think about how they loved the princess, and how sad they were that they would not be there to protect her anymore. Then the voices got quiet and went away. Abby woke up and almost jumped out of bed. She was cold and sweaty all over, and she was shaking. She was so scared that she couldn't breathe, so she looked up and started counting the glow-in-the-dark stars on her ceiling. There were lots of them, and she had to be careful or she would lose count. One, two, three, four, five. She made herself think about the stars. She did not try to forget the king and queen and the monster, because trying to forget about something never worked. It just made you think about it more. Thirty-four, thirty-five, thirty-six, thirty-seven. She thought about all the different shapes and sizes of stars on her ceiling. Father said that they were all lined up like the real stars in the sky, and that if you looked close, you could see pictures in them, like connect the dots. Abby hadn't seen it herself, because the city had so many lights and tall buildings that you could hardly see stars at all. Seventy-eight, seventy-nine, eighty, eighty-one, eighty-one. That was it. Eighty-one stars. Nine times nine. Father always said nine was a lucky number, an important number. Nine nines of stars to watch over his little princess. Princess. Abby felt cold again, but she was calm enough to breathe now. She reached out for mother and father in the next room. They would be sleeping, but they would wake up when she touched them. Mother would hold her in her arms and tell her everything was going to be okay, and father would make her some of the tea she liked that had the lemons in it. They were not there. Abby frowned and reached out harder. Mother and father were always there when she had the nightmares. They should be asleep in their beds. 
Sometimes Abby slept in late on Saturdays, and when she woke up they would not be in their beds, but it was not Saturday, and the clock said it was still the middle of the night. She reached out through the whole apartment, looking for them, but she did not find them. Abby wondered if maybe she just couldn't feel people that way anymore. She hadn't always been able to. It had started a couple of years ago, all of a sudden, so maybe it could go away like that, too. Mother and father couldn't do it at all, so nobody ever told her how it was supposed to work. Abby got up and went over to the door. She opened it and looked around with her eyes and listened close with her ears. The apartment was very quiet. She went down the hall to the right, into her parents' room. It was dark, but a little light from the street outside snuck in behind the curtains. She could see mother and father lying in bed together. Mother? Father? She said, using her talking voice because her inside voice didn't seem to be working. I had a bad dream. Mother and father did not move. There was a king and a queen, and they lived in a faraway land, she said, using her outdoor talking voice this time so that they would wake up. And there was a princess. But the monster came and hurt them because it wanted to take the princess away. Mother and father still did not move. Abby walked up to the front of the bed and pulled back the covers so she could see their faces. Mother? Father? Please wake up. The dream scared me, and I would like some tea, please. She looked closer with her eyes. She listened closer with her ears. Mother and father were not breathing. Oh, she said. Abby sat in the corner of her parents' room. It was still dark, but the clock said it would be morning soon. She had sat there waiting for a very long time, wondering if the monster would come back. Maybe it would not find her if she was not in her bed. She heard a sound from the hallway outside the apartment. It was a soft sound, but the apartment was very, very quiet. She reached out toward the noise and found a man outside the apartment. The door opened itself for him, and he came inside. She sat in the corner and waited. She could not hear his inside voice the way she could hear mother's or father's, but he seemed to know that she had touched him. He came to the door of her parents' room and turned on the light. He was tall and handsome, with long hair the color of straw, and eyes that were gray like storm clouds. He wore a uniform, black and gray, with a little wedge-shaped hat on top of his head. He looked at mother and father on the bed, then came over to stand beside them. He had black gloves on, and he reached down and stroked mother's hair. He sighed. Are you the monster? Abby asked. The man looked up at her. His mouth smiled, but his eyes looked sad. No, he said, and his voice sounded kind. No, I'm not a monster. He walked around mother and father's bed and came to stand over her. He reached out his hand. My name is Victor, he said. I'm here to rescue you.
And that's the end of the prologue. Come back next time for Chapter 1, when we're introduced to a group of hopeful young telepaths at Westfall Academy. Janet Frame said, All writers are exiles wherever they live, and their work is a lifelong journey towards the lost land. So step into the wilderness with me. It's time for the weekly writing report. This update covers the week of October 17th through October 23rd. I wrote 3,307 words this week, over the course of 4.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 696 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 189 days without breaking my chain. I struggled with Honor Bound this week. I know basically what plot points I need to hit between now and the end of this first book, but I'm struggling with the best way to do it. I've also been mostly unable to sit down and write until late in the evening, which means I've been short on sleep, and that makes it even harder to think about fiction and write good, clear prose. I'm in the home stretch of this first book in the series, but I've never been this far into a book before and so unsure about the next steps. I need to take some time this weekend to clear away the distractions, put the podcast on the back burner, and really think about where this story is going. I'm now in chapter 27, and the manuscript is over 70,000 words. Over on the Patreon feed, we have a new patron this week. Please welcome Akalia. Akalia is our second patron to take advantage of Patreon's new annual subscription option. When you pay up front for an entire year, you get a discount equal to roughly one month free. To take advantage of this, go to my Patreon page, select a membership level, and click on the link below the Join button. It's a particularly good choice if you're joining at the $1 level, because less of your pledge will be eaten up by transaction fees. If you like what I'm doing on this show, becoming a patron is the very best way to support me. For just $3 a month, you can get access to the first draft of Honor Bound as I'm writing it, as well as sneak peeks, cover reveals, and other cool stuff. Plus, all of my patrons get access to exclusive Metamore City artwork, an annual holiday card, and my behind-the-episode author commentaries. To get started, go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Take a look at the donation tiers and choose the one that's right for you. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. I couldn't do this without you. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, the fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out.
The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.